And hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tech Chat. Um, we are recording this on Thursday, uh, October 13th. It's been a while, uh, to quote a uh, grunge song from the 90s. Um, and uh, we figured we might as well do this before we realize we haven't done these uh, in like three months. Uh, we've all been very busy lately, uh, more so than usual. Uh, I know I've been doing a lot of development work, so I haven't had my head in uh, some of the things we normally research. So I wanted to get back into a bit. We're going to start uh, doing these a little more frequently again. And thank you very much for joining us. Um, so let me share my screen here. Is it now called present? They changed it. Yes. Share screen. And today's a tech chat Thursday. Yeah, exactly. We're changing it up. We're changing our image. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, Let's start off with some basics. So first of all, yes, you've reached the Chariot TechCast. All our operators are busy, but you can hit us up on, uh, let's see, Apple Podcasts, a whole bunch of other ones. We're on Spotify. We're on Amazon Podcasts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, you can hit us up and subscribe, and that way you're up to date with the latest things. A couple things going on lately at Chariot. So first of all, our blog is always cooking. So we've got a lot of uh, good stuff, especially around our 20th anniversary I know um, we've been around for 20 years this year, and so we are looking back uh, and inward on what we've done, how we feel we've been successful, what things we've learned, uh, and we're sharing some stuff. So you'll see some blog posts in our blog role uh, based on that. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, also, uh, we have um, a article from Keith Gregory specifically on the uh, CDK, which is the program-based uh, API as code way of building stacks in Amazon AWS. So he has a really good article on making that a little less brittle uh, called limiting cross stack references in the CDK. Um, if you want a fun take on the 20th anniversary, Tom Purcell's is absolutely hilarious. Um, and then we have things like uh, from, you know, business side of things and we've got uh, the big data side of things. I have one on just uh, tech movements over the years. And Mike Rapp has a really great one, of course, here, our C CEO, Mike Rappaport. Anyway, so check out our blog if you're interested in that kind of stuff. And if you search older in it, uh, older articles in the blog, we get tons and tons of information on all sorts of technologies in there and things we've done. If you want to watch video uh, that we've produced, we have a ton of content. Specifically, if you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, it'll take you to our homepage. Uh, and so there you can, you know, search our projects, uh, all the things we've talked about, all the speakers we brought in. Uh, there are playlists for everything from Philly ETE 2022, which was just uh, released, I think, in August. So all of our conference videos uh, from this summer are there. Um, same with 2021, all the way back to, I think, 2015 or 2014 even, uh, and a bunch of other things as well. We have a really good spotlight on women speakers that we've uh, had on our shows and have spoken uh, at Chariots events. Uh, and so there's just a lot of good stuff here. Wow, we're almost up to 7,500 subscribers. Yeah, ain't bad. Uh, and please subscribe if you like and subscribe. I feel like uh, every YouTube video creator now, right? Um, but please do. Please subscribe to this uh, if you're interested in, you know, trends in tech and new technologies that people are wrestling with. We're definitely going to be uh, paying attention to the things that are bubbling up. We always do. And then the little plug, uh, we are hiring right now. Uh, we are looking for developers in a number of different areas. Uh, and so, you know, hit chariotsolutions.com slash careers or our homepage. You can click into that as well. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for work right now, uh, if you want to work in a nice place where people uh, really value sharing with each other and improving how they do their work, uh, we have a lot of people here that have been here for a long time because they find a home here as a software engineer. So check that out. Okay. One event that's coming up that I want to make you aware of if you get this before next week, uh, Tech Training for Women. Uh, it's an uh, a online event. Um, for self-identified women working in development and design. Uh, we have uh, Hannah Pinkos is our speaker from that as well. She's one of our software engineers. Uh, and so that is happening on Tuesday the 18th from 9 to 3.30. And you just need to register. It is free. So check that out. We'll put a link. Shout in the out show to uh, Alicia Benz, a former Chariot consultant. Right. That's also going to be speaking. 
That's right. Alicia Benz is going to be speaking as well. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, and you can see our agenda if you're you know, curious about what's going on, um, all the speakers. So really good stuff. Talking about front-end frameworks, modern web development, best practices. That's Hannah's talk. Um, RESTful APIs. That's Alicia Benz's talk. DevOps um, is a good talk on DevOps as well. So it's a good kind of, you know, here's what full stack development looks like and all the things that, that go into it. Um, it's a good show. We have a, a good number of people registered right now. I think we're over a hundred. Uh, so that's great. So please join in, learn from us, learn from our speakers. Does Roy Fielding get paid every time someone uses the word rest? If so, he'd be richer than Elon Musk. <laughs> I think you might be right. It would be great if I was him then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I am not. So first of all, let's talk about something that's been bubbling in the Java community for, I don't know, five years, probably. Um, there is a project called Project Loom, right? Uh, that's been uh, bubbling for a long time in Java. Yep. So Suj, I'm going to throw this over to you. Virtual Threads has landed. Yeah. So it's right now a preview language feature, which you can enable in the latest versions of Java. But um, for folks that are new to this concept, previous versions of the JVM essentially defer to the operating system to do threading and thread management. And at the OS level, it's a more heavier weight construct. You're dealing with the call stack, dealing with registers, memory. Um, so context switching between one thread and another and having the OS do it means it takes longer, it's more intensive, and you have to be careful about saving state appropriately and sharing state. Um, and it also means that there's a limited number of threads per processor that the OS will manage. So you can get a certain level of concurrency via that, but you're essentially using a heavyweight construct for something that you may not need it for. So you may be able to do something and once your operation is complete or in the middle of something, it can block and wait for something else. And that time when it's not doing something useful and something else can take over, remember computers are blazingly fast. So that happens without anyone even realizing it. You can do a lot of work within a given unit at a time. And with a heavy rate construct like a thread, um, those switches and waiting and blocking means you can do less work effectively overall. So what Java is getting back to is a mode or a model where threads are created and managed by the JVM, not by the operating system. So essentially it's something that starts off using very little memory, very little state and will grow as needed. But the JVM can say, I can have thousands or millions of threads running at the same time, obviously interleaving and sharing you know, space and it's still running on a CPU. But instead of asking this OS to manage that, the JVM can do it and they can do a lot more. And what that means is things that, taking a long time to explain this, but things that you basically thought were not good things to do. Um, Ken, are you still there? Okay, hopefully you're still there. <laughs> anyway, folks, um, I'll continue on. Anyway, so um, things that were considered maybe bad to do in the past of starting up new threads, for example, managing an HTTP request coming in on a server, um, having one thread per request became heavyweight really fast in a performance hog, and it meant that you could only handle a certain number of requests um, and it would make inefficient servers. So, you know, this advent of asynchronous programming, asynchronous network IO, being able to handle many more requests at the same time. Um, but now with uh, this new threading model um, where the JVM is handling the threads that are lightweight, you could technically have a thread per request um, which, hold on, let's, uh, I think Ken is being resurrected here. Let me make sure um, he's coming back. See folks, this is what happens with the metaverse. Ken, testing, anyone home? Okay, well, we're still live, so I think I'll keep talking. Um, anyway, so with Loom and this new preview language feature, the idea is you're going to be using the same Java thread APIs. You're going to create threads the same way for the most part. Um, you're going to manage state the same way. Um, but there's a new way of creating a, uh, it's a new method for creating a new virtual thread pool. They're called virtual threads in Java. And what it means is when you're using that thread pool, the threads that are created are going to be virtually managed by the JVM. 
Um, and therefore, you can have many more threads. Um, you can think of it differently. Instead of thinking of it as heavyweight OS construct, you're just thinking of it as a lightweight thing that are very easy to create, very easy to dispose. Um, you can do them per request, per operation. Um, you could potentially have some large uh, problems that are easily parallelizable. You can spawn off many threads to perform that work. Um, whereas before, you would have to think about it a little bit more because you, each of the threads were actually OS threads. Um, now, these threads still have to run on a core on a CPU, so it does have to get assigned to a OS level thread. But the idea is that the context switching is happening at the JVM level, not at the OS level. So the context switches are cheap, low memory, um, and you can still be using the same thread on the OS side. So therefore, there's no OS level context switching. And I think we finally have Ken back, and I think he's resurrected. Um, are you there, or am I looking at an after image? Ken Rimple is not here. This is a droid. Um, no, that's me. I um, I switched to tethering. So you picked the best time to do it because you, you you heard that you missed the boring spiel I just gave. So that was good. If that was virtual threads, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, I've just been waiting for it for a while. That's all. I, I, I feel like it's been the longest uh, in-development feature in Java. Yeah. So, it's I mean, cool. I highly recommend folks uh, reading that article by Brian Getz, one of the architects mm -hmm. behind, behind these things. Um, very well written. Very good description of the new threading model, the old threading model, how JVM started early on in the beginning of its history with a concept called green threads. Green threads. Before, I was going to say that. Yeah, exactly. JVM at a time when OSs weren't really equipped to handle concurrency. Um, yeah. You didn't have multi-core CPUs. You know, it, it was a very different paradigm of, of computation back then. Um, now you have very beefy machines, very powerful processors. Um, so expect to see a lot more of this. Expect to see libraries take advantage of this. Expect to unlearn some things you learned about that were bad to do with threads before. That'll be totally okay to do now. And I've talked way too much about this as I was stalling for Ken to, to resurrect. So I think we can probably um, move on to the next topic. <laughs> Just as soon as I share the actual browser tab that has my topics okay. on it. I think this is it right here. Virtual threads. That's the one, isn't it? Yes, we're back. Okay, yeah. good. All right. Yep. So virtual threads, look for them, play with them. Hopefully they work for you. Um, Let's talk next. I'm going to throw you another one since my internet seems to be odd. So I'm going to give okay. you a little more time being the center stage, please. Um, what's this one all about? Like, did Toyota somehow put keys in, in GitHub? Let me uh, pull up the uh, link one second here. Uh -uh. Um, so yeah. there's a, actually several very uh, good lessons to learn from this. It was, uh, I think, very timely because um, I know you and I and others have been talking about, you know, secrets management and moving things away from stuff in source control and plain text files and, you know, taking the time to identify all of those things and where they are and how they could leak it instead of putting it into something that's managed centrally um, that is encrypted and where keys are rotated. And yeah, there's a cost of doing that, but um, much better than losing your keys or having an, a, data exposed. So um, apparently Toyota's connectivity app, uh, there were public repos on GitHub and there was a hard-coded secret to a data server um, for the last five years, kind of unbeknownst to the team. Um, and that server that would you'd get access to with that secret included uh, PII and customer data. So it's pretty scary. Um, and the source code repository that is being talked about here was inadvertently changed to a public repo in December, 2017. So before it was private. So the, surface, you know, the, the blast radius was smaller or so to, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, the ability to get to that was with a, a smaller number of people, but obviously once it became public, it went to the whole crap to anyone. Oh, yeah. And then um, on top of that, uh, this is, this is to me very important, especially because we're in, in consulting is Toyota blamed a development subcontractor for the error of pushing the hard coded secret into the source code. So Ooh, yeah. that obviously stood out to me big time. Um, because of, you know, Cherry Solutions, a consulting firm. So um, I think, you know, it, it behooves us to even be more careful. And if we see code bases like this, to basically say, you know, we don't want to continue this practice like this, you know, we recommend you do X, Y, and Z to move forward and, you know, should not have anything hard coded, whether it's for unit tests 
whether it's for dummy POCs, whether it's for anything. I don't think of any scenario where any of that data should be available in source control or in configuration files that are put into a repo remotely in the cloud. So um, obviously they learned the hard way here. And the couple interesting thing, Ken, that I don't know if you're familiar with some of these tools. You know, I wasn't at least for one of them, but uh, SEMgrep is one I, I do know teams are using um, basically oh. through all repositories to find secrets and other vulnerabilities. So um, cool. basically this goes through like what you would do with that tool and with um, how to configure that and then configuring security around um, personal access tokens and SAML on GitHub. So the <clears throat> moral of the story there is make sure your repos are properly locked, security settings, collaborating settings, et cetera, read, write settings, all that is- Two-factor off. Two-factor off, oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> Two-factor off, um, all that's properly configured. Um, you know, that is something that once you do it once and you have a recipe for it, it should just be how you create repos for anything in the run book for doing that. So there should be no reason to do it any other way. Um, there's a tool called Tines, which allows you to create web hooks with GitHub, for example, where you can get alerts if a repository becomes public, for example. So oh, great. Yes. That inadvertently happens, you would find out right away and you could resolve that issue if you didn't expect for that to occur. Um, and this goes over how to set that up as well. Um, and then finally, um, having uh, a code owner's file in GitHub to identify the developers that are the owners of the repo that are the reviewers um, and to have that obviously enforced as well. So highly recommend anyone that's doing development, any development managers to go through this article, um, see kind of what tools are out there and then make sure that their existing repos that they're responsible for kind of follow these things and nothing's out there. And I know Ken recently had done some work where he was reviewing code for uh, one of our clients where um, I think some of these issues were there. So that's why I said timely. I think you will find this interesting, Ken. Yeah, yeah. And another uh, uh, corollary thought is make sure if you're doing something like, you know, AWS or Google or, you know, Microsoft Cloud, that you have different accounts for your different uh, layers of uh, teams, right? So, so you know, even if someone had a developer account uh, thing by accident, God forbid, committed, hopefully that would only affect the, uh, have a blast radius of the development environment and the development platform. Um, so like always make sure you're separating those environments. I know it's startups. Sometimes it's really easy to like start building and running, but uh, the minute you uh, let things in the hand of hands of people where you're not hundred percent sure whether they're going to share it with somebody else, uh, you've got huge risks. So separate those environments, lock down those keys. You know, Keith Gregory would tell you the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's easy to Gregory. do. So it's not like a knock to the developers that. No, not at all. It's very easy to get a secret or something in source code and not realize it because as your team grows, as the code base grows, um, it, 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 it's easy for this to happen, which is why I like the idea of using an automated tool like SEMGREP or something to be checking for these maybe on each check-in or each build to make sure the stuff doesn't creep in. Cause that's, you could put everything in secrets manager, but a new member could join the team and it could certainly creep in. Absolutely. And I love this tool. I think it's great to know that, that exists and you could put that in your builds. You know, it's all these things like .env files, right. In your, in your, uh, uh, NPM repositories, those are your environment variable files where you set things. Um, you know, it's very easy to create a like .env dash sample and let people use that as a template. But if you accidentally put a key in there, you've just checked it in. Yeah. So it's great to know that this kind of tool could run as part of your build perhaps, or on a regular basis and catch this kind of stuff. Yeah. So for the, love of for the love of Alan Turing, I won't say God, because Alan Turing's like a comp sci God. Uh, <laughs> don't log oh, any Do not log secrets to files. Um, oh God, yes. Please, please don't do that. It's easy to leak things without realizing it. Sometimes these log files get stored um, they get aggregated, they get parsed into search engines like, you know, Elasticsearch, yeah. or sometimes um, folks even log, uh, check in a certain number of log files. So, um, again, that's another way that this stuff can get in. So don't do anything sensitive in your log file. Really great point. Absolutely. All right. That's a really good post to bring up. Thank you for that one. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. Um, now, you, I, I know these are all yours up front. I front loaded you today. Um, Functional Programming at Scala, second edition is out. And Michael Pilquist. Yeah, so that's Look mainly that. why I... Um, we know him. I, 
brought this up yet. So Michael Pilquist, someone uh, we've worked with for many years in the past. Uh, he works for Comcast. He's a distinguished engineer there now. So congratulations on that promotion, Michael. Oh, wonderful. Um, he's one of the co-authors on Functional Programming in Scala, which is a excellent book on a primer for functional programming um, on category theory and how to kind of do these things in Scala in a pure functional way. Um, and um, he's in the list of co-authors. And this has been you know, obviously a huge area of passion for him and commitment and dedication to this and other libraries that he significantly contributes to um, in the pure you know, functional world in Scala. So um, hi, if you're interested in functional programming, interested in Scala, I highly recommend checking this book out. It's, a, it's like a tome, covers a lot of information, but um, it is a great primer. Excellent. And now this one made me scratch my head a little bit. We do need to talk about this one. So just a quick disclaimer, we have had uh, Jonas on uh, and actually had him come and speak at Chariot a number of years ago when uh, Scala was first popping and Akka was becoming something. Uh, I remember uh, you know, those interviews and those discussions. So he was the creator of Akka. And if I'm reading right, they're changing the license for the next four years up to, is that correct? Um, I, sure I, so. I don't know about, the, I don't know about the duration, but I know it's like this is turning into this business open source license. Yes. Um, so essentially what I gather is, um, it stipulates that for businesses that earn more than $25 million um, in revenue, mm -hmm. Uh, that they need to pay for ACA. So they have to abide by whatever rules are in this license. And so I think for smaller shops or for R&D purposes or startups, um, you can still use ACA as you're using today. Um, but that's not to say that they may not change something else in the future around the license or make it more restrictive. So um, I'm not going to really be judgmental or share yeah, my, no. my thoughts on it. But if, you, if folks that are listening, I'm very curious to hear what people think about this model and various different models of companies that start off doing open source work and invariably obviously need to generate revenue to pay their employees and to continue maintaining marketing, et cetera. Um, so this is something that many open source um, based companies deal with um, how to grapple the right way. Um, so I think for companies of that size of which I believe one of our former clients is interesting, how is it going to impact them? All their alternatives, um, that are actually realistic for them to move to at some point. Um, will Java's embrace of uh, virtual threading coming up and maybe new libraries that are built on top of continuations and coroutines, will that obviate the need for something like Akka um, mm -hmm. if you don't necessarily need an actor-based model? Um, so right. definitely curious to hear whether this kind of move will actually push people away from Akka into some of the other ways of doing things. Um, but it was it was like definitely a big shock within the Scala world. It seems like this is temporary because it says the BSL license that has been created that that uh, two other people have created, uh, David oh, Axmark and Michael Wideness. Um, it's being used by MariaDB, Cockroach Labs, Century, and Materialized, and some other places. It says in here, but it says after three years, the BSL license indefinitely reverts to Apache 2.0 license. Oh, so it feels like. I'm, I'm not passing judgment either because it's hard to make a business out right. of an open source platform. So I totally get like that they need to fund themselves. Yep. And especially if it, if they're providing production support for customers as well. So this may be a way of funding the next three years of development to kind of get it over some humps perhaps or keep it going. But I wonder what happens after that three years. I'd be very curious. Yeah, that is interesting. I That I did not know. Yeah, I was looking at that. And going, Wait a second. That's part of the BSL? So, um, you know, and it seems like there's a number of companies that are doing this, like MariaDB. That's interesting. I didn't realize they did that, um, which is like a, a fork of, um, what I is it? Uh, yeah, right. Um, so interesting, you know, see where this is going. If, if this is a new trend or this is a kind of unique situation for them in terms of how much we're going to see this in the real world uh, for our types of clients. Um, but yeah, it's at least going to affect one of the clients that we've worked with. So certainly. Um, and there's a fact around this. And so they talk about like, if you're a subscriber, uh, current subscribers are fully covered by their existing subscriptions, the vast majority of them. Um, and so I guess if they're moving to production in ACA and they weren't having production in ACA before, right. they will have to talk to them 
Um, and of course, if you're using it for open source, uh, it looks like there's a grant to do that without paying. Uh, so that could be good. Anyway, so check out the fact if you're using Akka and your company is greater than 25 million in revenue, you need to pay attention to this for sure. Do you remember the blog post um, execution in the kingdom of nouns? Do you remember this thing? Yes, I do actually. I mean, it's a wonderful, I, I love Steve Yegi's blog rants. It's, it's really fun. Um, man is very smart. And he, this was a whole basically challenge to think about things functionally, as opposed to thinking about things in object orientation um, you know, functional programming, basically. It's a good manifesto for that, so to speak. Um, well, Steve um, Yegi uh, had worked at Google for a while. I, when I was looking at this article, the, the windup in this article is saying, check the, out what we're doing and get involved in our community. So it's really kind of like a, a story that ends up with an ask, right? Um, so I was like going through this morning and kind of pl plotting everything. And around 2005, he was working at Google uh, and he had a whole bunch of influx of Microsoft developers because he, as he said, the party moved to Google for compiler developers, right? It started uh, way back when at Borland and other places like that, people were working in, in those Silicon Valley companies. Then they went to Microsoft for a little while. And then the party went over, as he said, to Google. And so he had been at Google working on things and uh, Google uh, has a lot of code, obviously. Um, and so what he said was that the new Microsoft developers were complaining that they couldn't find their way around Google's code base. And about 2008, he had enough. So he created a tool called Grok. Uh, it's a, a code intelligence platform. So CI, uh, what's CIP, I think it is, code intelligence platform, whatever. But it's a C, uh, code intelligence API. So you can you know, dig through things, find references, find places where things are used, where they're defined, and so on. Um, and he put it into a queryable knowledge graph uh, that you can then use with other tools. And uh, Google developers all use this thing to find code and search through code. It's built into all their tooling. It's built into their you know code reviews and everything else, IDEs, code query engines, notebooks, you name it. Um, Google Code Search, by the way, is one of these things. Uh, so I ha have up here Chromium Code Search yeah. is one of the Google Code Search front ends. And if you type, for example, GPU, uh, you're looking at the code, it's really fast. Um, so you look at the code and you pop into something. Uh, so let's look at GPU info.cc. Then I believe this is where, if I'm correct, this is where the code intelligence tool is working. So here are all the links to the different pieces of it. Um, here are all the related files. You know, you can kind of click your way into different things in the code base, stuff that we kind of assume that our IDEs would do today, right? right. But in like a globally indexed searching platform for this, which is really kind of wild. I wonder what Steve Yeggy would think of the, you know, the GPT-3 based um, <laughs> language models that are being trained on source code to be able to explain the source code, like combine yeah. that with this. It's dangerous, really powerful stuff, right? Potentially, or you get a unicorn with a carrot for a nose. You know, you never know what you're going to get with some of the AI uh, things, but yeah, exactly. Pretty wild stuff. I mean, everything is clickable and jumpable everywhere. But anyway, so that's what that's what he built with this tool called Grok. Um, and then, you know, he worked for a number of years there. Uh, he is now retired from Google and kind of hanging out um, and looking for the next thing to do. Uh, and he said that Grok would be great outside of Google. But the problem is nobody took it on to write a standardized Grok. Instead, what they did was they did um, code intelligence with like fuzzy searching. So we all know from using IDEs, if you open up like Visual Studio Code or IntelliJ and you start doing some searching, it's going to find things that are close enough to what you're thinking of. Or if like the code base doesn't use types like JavaScript, mm -hmm. if you do dot for code completion, it kind of guesses. So you get the good stuff up front and you get this garbage at the bottom that sounds like it might make sense. Um, so, you know, he really felt that it would be good for the industry uh, would not so they would not have mediocre tools because as as he said, mediocre tools have been normalized in our industries. Most of the tools out there outside big IDEs are using heuristic based, aka wrong <laughs> intelligence rather than precise intelligence. So it basically means we're all slowed down by like having to filter out the junk. Mm -hmm. um, so then uh, he's been talking to Source Graph. He was doing a bunch of other discussions with other startups and other companies. Uh, and SourceGraph was one he was aware of. Um, and they're kind of doing this kind of like code intelligence indexing uh, stuff. Um, and so 
you know, they've got this platform using a tool called LSIF, which is an indexing technique, um, but it's lossy. In other words, you lose some information as you index things. So you can't really make as many leaps as you could with like, you know, Grok, the, the tool that he wrote. So he had a phone call uh, with them and was talking about what they're doing. And they said, hey, can you fix a bug in our code? So he started using their tools and he ran across a little commit that they were doing uh, and found out that they actually were replacing LSIF with a, an API they're creating, which is called SCIP, uh, Source Code Intelligence Protocol. So he looks at this and says, wait a second, you guys are basically doing Grok but for modern code bases mm -hmm. um, and you're kind of making something that could be really useful for the rest of the world to use. So based on that, he is now going to work at SourceGraph as their head of development, head of engineering. And he wants to bring this to life for third parties and extended uh, you know, community. So that's one of the things he has. His ask is basically down in here, um, well, guess what? It's been 15 years, folks. We're starting the party up again. <laughs> There's some hype. I'm going to be banging the drums and generating a lot of hype around, he even says it, around SourceGraph's code intelligence platform. It's going to power amazing improvements to SourceGraph product itself, but you won't need SourceGraph search portal. Whoops. Thank you, dictionary. To use SCIP, you'll be able to mine those diamonds however you like. This is his words. Um, so what he's doing is he's trying to make it a standard for source code indexing so that other people can use these tools. Uh, and they can use their their own tools to kind of be powered by this indexing mechanism. So it'll be interesting to see where this heads. Um, I don't know anything about SourceGraph, to be honest. It must be some code analysis tool. Have you ever used it, Sujan? I have not used it. Yeah, be interesting to check out what it is. Um, I you know I put stock in what he's saying. He's certainly got the the smarts and the the implementation ability to get really good stuff done. So it'd be interesting to see if that SCIP starts bubbling up. As a term, we start hearing IDE starting to use it, uh, searching engines starting to use it, and uh, that would be very, very cool. So that's Steve Yegi's work at SourceGraph. And if you're curious, um, we'll, we'll uh, post a link to his original article in 2006, which is really fun to read, um, Execution of the Kingdom Nouns. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to a point where there's going to be a ton of code running in the world written by developers that are either retirement retired or no longer with us. Um, so I think any of these static analysis, automation tools, analysis tools are gonna be critical in being able to manage all that code. Yeah, here's here's the, um, I, I did pull it up and then I never got around to it, but uh, let's just do uh, GD, uh, GDPU. Uh, so, I mean, I'm certainly just flying around here, but this is the website that's being powered by it. I have no idea if this is what's going to end up being uh, the tool that they use, but like certainly it seems like it's very user-friendly if you know what you're looking for, for, for sure. Um, so we'll see where it goes. You know, I'll have to check that out and see what I can glean off of the public SourceGraph site. Okay, uh, get this. Let's go old again. Let's go really old. Let's go before cool. my career at Chariot and before Chariot. Um, the forgotten operating system that keeps the New York City subway system alive. This is a vice.com article uh, on Motherboard, which is a great blog. I love this. Um, get this. OS2 is still powering the card reading system in the New York City subway system. Can you imagine that? OS2. It's still alive. So the MetroCard system uh, is OS2. Apparently... It's super, super stable. It never crashes and it just works. But try to find someone who still programs in OS2. That's, that's going to be a real challenge. So this is an interesting, interesting article about how it became the standard for the MTA. Wow. Um, yeah, right? The latest um, release of OS2 was December 2001. So 20, over 20 years ago. Right? Now, what's going to kill it? You know what's going to kill it? Wireless payments, right? Tap, uh, tap to pay because the tap to pay systems are all mobile phone based, uh, you know, um, chips on the phones, that kind of thing. So I think that's what's going to ultimately make this thing sunset long-term. However, when are they going to get rid of the MetroCard? Everyone can use it. It just works. Right. But it's fascinating right. to think, you know, like there's, there's custom hardware vendors that are still keeping the hardware alive for this stuff. 
Yeah. Oof. Are they going to, does the article mention, like, are they piloting newer systems in some locations or? Nope. Um, that the, 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 yeah, the contactless payments are the big change. They're the ones that are um, looking at it. So it says okay. the MTA is currently testing a system to replace okay. MetroCards with various forms of contactless payments. So ultimately that would be it. So ultimately, okay. if you have a, a card that would have a chip in it, in an right. NFC chip, that ultimately will replace it. But OS2 is older than my oldest kid by a large amount. So, wow. And my oldest kid's 25. So Yeah, the first release of OS2 was December 1987. Mm -hmm. I graduated high school in, in 1987. So Wait, apparently it's... Wait a minute. And everyone goes, it shut up, Homer. It got forked <laughs> Changed into a new thing called Arca OS, an OS based on OS two. Um, oh yeah, oh, well, Arca Noe is the company that took it on. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. wow. Aren't I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that'll blow your mind, you know. Well, they're still running mainframes too. So, but this is just amazing to think that like the stuff that's powering the things that get you from A to B in the subway system is an OS two system. And it's not just the readers; it's like integration systems between the different uh, computers and stuff. I used to love the OS2 warp ads. I don't remember them anymore. Oh. You know what's funny? When I first started working at my first consulting firm that I worked for, there was a shelf in that place that had all sorts of old dinosaur software, and mm -hmm. they had Ashton Tate SQL Server 1.0. And then they had um, Microsoft SQL Server 1.1 for OS2. And then they had SQL Server for NT. And then, you know, that was when it finally became what everyone is using today. But Ashton Tate, the DBase people, originally wrote the, the port for the Intel platform of Sybase, the database. So crazy how the software all evolves. When, when you're free one day, just on YouTube, search OS2 Warp Ad, there's a, it, you'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll have to do that. All right, and then uh, we're going to do one more news article. Then we have two things that we want to talk about around tools and, and things like that. But uh, this one's just kind of fun because, I don't know, HTML has been around since Dirt was invented, and it's got some strange tags in it that people use or don't use. Um, I do love this icon. Searching for cool HTML elements, especially if you don't know where you're looking for, is often like being thrown into a pile of garbage. That is really a fun uh, animation. i got to get that one. Anyway. So a couple tags you may not be using, the meter tag. Are you aware of the meter tag? Well, I, was I wasn't either. Um, apparently, you know, all our CSS-based uh, you know, components that do meters, right. you could use this instead. So there you go. Interesting. Now, it's not that we don't know that superscript and subscript exist. I'm sure everyone knows that those tags might have been there at one point. You know, do people use them? Um, math people probably use them. So great. We'll move on from that one. I don't care about that one. Um, but yes, there's a sub and a super, and that lets you put super and subscript in your font. Yay. Data list. So data lists can be placed uh, next to input fields to give you quick autocomplete suggestions. Interesting one. I didn't so, know yeah, that. I didn't either. Yeah. Um, so that's good to know. And I'll bet this is something that maybe is good for like assistive readers and things like that too, because I'll, I'll bet there's a way to ask them to, to play those back, but that's just a guess. Um, and apparently it can be used for things like color, date, time, and even range inputs. Okay. But it says the default styling suggestions is unpleasant to look at, say the least, but you can always style it using CSS. Or you can always use a good, you know, autocomplete widget that works on all the browsers the same, et cetera, whatever. Right. Um, I, I know about map and area. Image maps are a thing that we used to do way back in the day. So I'm yeah. sure everyone knows that you can click a certain place and an image, draw a rectangle or polygon and, and jump to it. Thought they were right. the coolest thing back in the day. Yeah, like in nineteen ninety. Yeah, nineteen for me it was like nineteen, yeah, like nineteen ninety eight. I thought they were really cool. <laughs> well, everyone was building home pages in HTML. Exactly. Right? That's exactly what it was. <laughs> you show timers anyway. Um, that's me, by the way. Um, so then there's also details and summary. Never really paid attention to details and summary, but uh, you can have uh, a little kind of uh, expandable box. Never knew that existed. So you have a details uh, tag and you put your summary title in it and then all the rest of the content pops down and up. Huh. News you can use? I don't know. Um, object. 
Yeah. Okay. You can you can embed stuff. That's been around forever. We'll ignore that. I assume the detail summary, like maybe the uh, the accessibility assistive stuff, takes advantage of that. And I do not know. Okay. <laughs> because the article is called Seven Things Nobody Uses," and apparently I'm nobody because <laughs> I didn't use it. I don't know. <laughs> Object is the way you used to embed uh, embed objects, and so. You can embed videos and PDFs and audio and stuff. And I think anyone who's done any media stuff has run into the object tags. I'm not sure that's a novel thing. Some of these articles are put together kind of as listicles. And so those are kind of, you know, in there that some people already know about. Mm -hmm. um, also, the abbreviation element allows you to add abbreviations. And if you hover over them, it gives you, come on, give me an animation here, guys. Um, when you hover over them, it gives the actual definition. So a tool tip, basically. So out of all those, the one that I thought was kind of cool was meter. I didn't know meter existed. That's kind of cool. So eh, something to talk about. Maybe. All right. But now something interesting you brought up uh, is JetBrains finally released a public beta of Fleet. Talk to me about Fleet, man. Have you no, looked I've at it? I've not played around with it yet. I, I have downloaded it the other day. Mm -hmm. I have not had a chance to, to take a spin through it. But yeah. What I found interesting was the way they've architected the app to be kind of distributed. So you can have a basic text editor that is like an advanced text editor, but it's not a full ID. Um, and you can use it just as a text editor, um, lightweight, client side. And you can basically switch it into like development ID mode, where if you want those fe advanced features, you can turn that on and basically have, you know, full-fledged, modern kind of lightweight ID um, that has pretty good support um, for a number of languages out of the box. Um, I don't know about its plugin ecosystem. I don't know how far they are yet. I remember this is just a public beta and they're looking to yeah. get feedback from developers on the experience, et cetera. But um, apparently what they're trying to go for is something very fast where you can load it really fast, not a memory hog. And if you need to develop code on it, you can enable that and still it not be a memory hog. So what they have is they have like a, a client component client side component and like a server side component if you choose to use that model where you can have a backend running on the cloud that does all of the code indexing and scanning and you know multiple developers could take advantage of the same code base being indexed and scanned and look up queries against that for autocomplete for searches so the idea being that the heavyweight lifting happens in the background on another server which right those indices, et cetera, tend to take the memory, right? So um, it, idea being that hopefully it would remain snappy on the client side. I haven't done any of that and tried it out, so I don't know how well that works in practice. I would assume for a really large code base being shared by a team, um, that could be potentially a big benefit. Now, I will tell you this. I've been playing around, well, okay. When I said been playing around with me, I looked at it for like a day and went, mm because I just didn't have a use for it. Uh -huh. um, have you heard of their tool called Space? So Space is no, their complete distributed software development platform where they warm up containers in the cloud to like crazily fast IDEs that are oh, shared. Okay. I definitely have not heard of that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. it's But of course, money. <laughs> so the thing I'm wondering is I'm assuming, because why would they build two of these things that are similar but different? I'm assuming their backend they're talking about is probably space desktops. Okay. So this is probably a gateway drug into the space platform. Interesting. Um, so we're all going to space, man. We're going to go to space. And that space is JetBrains space. Are you ready for JetBrains space? Because I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'm going to check it out. So space desktop, like there are like low cost instances. And then you can ramp up like 64 CPU instances of the, of the uh, running container. Um, and I guess that's like maybe what the server technology is. So we should check both those out together um, and see how they hook into each other. I would be willing to bet that that is what Fleet is powered by in the back end. Okay. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, they say it's free for public preview. I'd be curious to see what like a license would be for a development team for this thing going forward. I did open it up. I played with it for about 10 minutes. And what stopped me was I couldn't find plugins yet. It looked beautiful and it started instantly. Like there was no lag. It just popped right, right up. Um, which I really like um, there. I didn't see plugins and I couldn't enable a Vim mode because I'm an old timer that loves Vim. 
So I'm like, oh, I got to Google that and search for that. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think they have. I don't think they have uh, that support yet for key binding. I, I specifically read that somewhere. So someone in the okay. hacker news thread was like, it's a non-starter for them because they don't have Vim key binding. <laughs> I'm sure that's one of the first things they'll add to it because everyone will be begging for it. Um, the other thing is, it is great to be able to have an IDE that opens fast enough. I don't need to open Sublime Text, you know, or Vim. I just want a quick editor that does all this stuff, so I don't have to you know, wait on anything. Um, and I don't have to have all the IDE stuff loading up if I don't want it. So I, I think it's a great idea. I'm glad to see that it's out. I'm sure it took a lot of work to get this out. So kudos to the JetBrains team um, because it's it's a big deal. You know, this is a brand new platform for them. Yeah. Whereas all the other IDEs are built on a common platform they already have. So they could launch new IDEs based on the, on the standard platform. This is a whole new endeavor. So, so I'm really itching what, to try this out. For web development, what do you prefer? Visual Studio Code or, or WebStorm? I love WebStorm, I got to say. Um, I will open up things in code just because it's quick to type code space dot in a terminal. Um, and if I'm just browsing things, I'll do that. Sometimes if I'm just trying not to be distracted, I'll open Vim instead just okay. to stay like completely focused on something. But mm -hmm. code or Sublime Text are my quick editors. Uh -huh. And I really love WebStorm for like debugging and testing and, okay. and running terminals and stuff. I prefer it. So it'd be great to see if I can replace that with fleet. Ultimately, I would love to. Cool. Yeah. I'm really curious. I want to see this in action. Okay. And now the JetBrains toolbox, which I have to install to get to this is covering my terminal. There it is. And then the last one, um, I like this. Uh, this is just more of like a practical comment. Uh, David Amos uh, is a developer who blogs about various things. Um, and the statement here is, do you want cleaner code? Use the rule of six. This boils down to basically not doing more than one thing on a line of code, logically speaking. If you've got too much stuff going on on a line of code, it's hard to understand it quickly. He brings up your typical, uh, you know, parts of your brain, like everyone's long-term memory. That's the stuff that you can you yeah. know, bring back whenever you need it. You know, you know something, you've understood it, it's in your brain. Uh, Short-term memory is something that uh, you have in your mind for about 30 seconds. And working memory is like, you know, processing information. Um, bottom line is that you can only really hold about four to six things in those pieces of memory. So uh, it's hard to look at a line of, let's say, Perl code <laughs> that's this long and understand what the heck it's doing because it's probably doing 35 things or like a crazy regular expression. So his point is break it apart. And the rule of six is if any line of code contains more than six pieces of information, it should be simplified like this. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Help me, you know? Um, it's right. interesting so, to see these kind of, I don't know this part. Oh, wait, who, who wrote the article again? D David Amos is his name. Okay. Um, it's yeah. interesting to see, I guess, um, I don't know David Amos, but uh, yeah. thanks for the article. These sure. topics being revisited again, because I feel like these are things people, newer developers are rediscovering, because Martin Fowler covered oh. very similar things a long time ago um, in general, right, or, around this kind of stuff and um, method refactoring and, and, you know, complexity and method length, et cetera, yep. um, and factoring things out for, you know, with that kind of extreme programming TDD style. So I think, I, I don't know, David, I don't know what, what generation he's from, but I think it's good to see that people are rediscovering it and putting it back out there for, you know, and sharing that knowledge. It's truly an evergreen topic because as people come into the industry, sometimes you get a really clever solution to something and you're like, solved it. And then you think I'm done. But then three years later, someone comes back and just, you know, they look at it and go, what the heck is this thing? What does it do? And then they end up bothering you about it later. And you, you don't remember because it's too complex. Yep. So it's just great for other people, number one, to break these things up. So he basically goes apart and, and says, you know, split it into multiple lines, really simple thing to do. You can start by breaking apart the params. Uh, that's great. Now you've got seven things to worry about because you have to remember what the query params are. Um, but uh, do it again, and you can you know just keep bringing it down to simpler, 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 basically. Then there's another one called morph. Move out and rewrite as a function. Yeah. That's yeah. standard. Extract, extract method. Mm -hmm. Extract yep. method, same thing. But it's nice to see this, especially if you're not like working in IDE all the time where you've got these tools and you're like really used to working Python notebooks. And I suppose he is Python as... Uh, line of stuff here so maybe yeah, he does a lot absolutely. of stuff like that 
you know, where the tools aren't there necessarily. So yeah. you just have to think about cleaning it up. So the bottom line is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say his, his, his windup is once you know that your working memory and short-term memory aren't overloaded, you know that any confusion left over is due to some missing information in your long-term memory or knowledge of what's going on of the APIs of the platform of the techniques, which I like, just, I like the way. I'm just glad that. I still have memory. I don't have any, I gave it up. <laughs> My kid needed a calculator. So I, there, take it. All right, cool. Well, that's it. We've gotten through another tech chat and we'll call it tech chat Thursday today, but we're removing the word Tuesday from it because it's hard for us to figure out a regular time. So this is just chariot tech chat. Yeah. We're going to be don't matter in the metaverse guys. So. <laughs> but it matters where you put your dog because you might trip over him with those headsets on. So just be careful. I can't wait for a met. I, I will get my daughter a meta pet. <laughs> That's just like one of those stupid Tamagotchis from years ago. You remember yeah. those? I think they were really popular. They were really popular. I think it was right before I had kids. They, they got really popular and I got lucky to miss them. Oh, can you keep my virtual pet alive? I'm like, yeah, I couldn't do that. All right. Well, that's it. So, hey, check us out uh, at uh, the Chariot Tech Cast. You can look us up at the uh, website. If you go to uh, go to chariotsolutions.com, go over here to resources and you see podcasts. And that's where we are. You check out our blog. Like I said, if you are a self-identified woman in tech, you can check out the link that I didn't click, which is right here. Tech Training for Women, a guided tour of the full stack. If you get to that before Tuesday the 18th, it is free. In fact, Tuesday the 18th in the morning, I'm sure you can get on. Um, but uh, yeah, join, sign up. We've got some great speakers uh, and I think it'll be really valuable. Um, and again, uh, leave us a good comment here uh, on YouTube, what have you. Go to chariotsolutions.com uh, at YouTube. So youtube.com slash chariotsolutions is the quick link. And uh, you'll find the Chariot Tech Chats in here currently called tech chat Tuesdays and we're that's it. <laughs> I'm really incoherent today at the end of the day, but thank you for joining everybody. And so for the tech chat, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. Have a good week or whatever it's going to be. <laughs>